Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not hidden yourself from us, but that you have given us yourself and that you even give us the ability to receive that gift from yourself. Pray you would come in these moments, in these meager words. You would fill them with your spirit so they might be your word to us. A word that can melt our hearts to receive you more deeply. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you know those people who, uh, who seem to never get shaken? Right, those people who never get flustered, who seem like they can handle anything, uh, who always seem like they're three steps ahead, they have this incredible capacity, they, they carry with them a non-anxious presence, they're steady and settled when everyone else is running around like a chicken with their head cut off. You know that particular kind of really annoying person? <laughs> Me too. They're annoying not because anything's wrong with them, but just because when we're around them and we compare ourselves to them, we recognize that something might be wrong with us. Because we know how riven we are with insecurities, how much anxiety we carry, how much the chaos and the storms of the world tend to, to shake us and bend us out of shape and throw us out of whack. It, it can honestly make them hard to relate with sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to see the world through their eyes because it seems so different from the way that we're seeing. But today in our text, we're going to be looking at the world through the eyes of just that kind of steady, unflustered frustrating person. Today in our text, we're going to look at this story through the eyes of Jesus himself. Because this is the last Sunday of our Epiphany Sermon series on the feeding of the 5,000. Each week, we've looked at this story through the lens of a different character, right? We looked first to the crowds and at Jesus' gut-level care and concern for them. Uh, we looked at the disciples and how they were overwhelmed by the wrong thing, overwhelmed by what they lacked instead of what they had in Jesus. We looked at it through the lens of the bread, how, like it, we are taken, blessed, broken, and given to be feast for one another in the world. We looked at the child who gave up his lunch in childlike faith. We looked at the disciples again as they became a channel for God's work in the world, how God worked through them to feed the masses. And each and every angle on this story has shown us that when we gather around Jesus, there is more than enough for anything and everything we might face. But in the whole series, we haven't focused much on Jesus himself in his person, focused in on what he is doing in the midst of this story. Because again, I, I think he's the hardest to identify with. The encounter begins, right, by him trying to retreat because of his grief over the death of his cousin and, and friend John the Baptist, which is highly relatable. But as soon as the crowds show up, he, he flips this sort of serene perfection switch. He sees them, cares about them, pays attention to them, teaches them, heals them, gives of himself sacrificially, even though he'd honestly probably rather be somewhere else. And we think, well, of course that's the case, right? He's God. He's the perfect son of God. He's the one who's supposed to do everything right, supposed to do everything well. It's his job to be perfect. 
But the best way to enter these gospel stories about Jesus, when we see him doing something amazing, is to enter them the way those first disciples entered them, at face value. Because what they saw was not a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity. What they saw was the face of a fully human person. An amazing fully human person who they did not understand, but a fully human person who tasted everything we as humans face. And we know this included anxiety and impending chaos. In the Garden of Gethsemane later on, he's so racked that he sweats drops of blood. But in stories like this one, it seemed like he's got it all together. But these times of having it all together are not examples of his divinity overriding his humanity, like canceling it out for a minute, right? Let me put my humanity over the side so I can be perfect. These moments are examples of his divinity filling his humanity, filling out his humanity, examples of Jesus becoming the most fully human person that ever lived, lived life to the full with the life of God. In these stories, he's not showing us what we will never be. He's showing us what we were meant to be. Which means that what Jesus has in these moments is not just something other that we can never access. In these moments, he has a very human faith, a very human dependence, a very human confidence in who his father is and what his father is doing in the world that was far beyond what the disciples had yet grasped. What set Jesus apart was his trust in his father and the peace that that gave him. And when you read the passage, you notice Jesus is not even concerned with what the disciples are concerned about. He's three steps ahead, right? They're, they're, they're flummoxed about dinner, and he's planning an object lesson around the dinner that is deep enough for six or even 600 sermons. He's the steady point in the story. He's the non-anxious center which everything revolves around. He's the, he's the fixed anchor holding strong in the chaos. Which is, of course, a profound comfort to us. Because this is the age of anxiety. We're living in it. You know it. I know it. We all know it. We all feel it. Because the world is changing so fast. There's such fragility in anything we grasp onto that we, that we desperately need somewhere safe, somewhere steady, somewhere to take refuge in the midst of all the chaos that's swirling. Because everything we build so easily falls apart. If it hasn't yet, just wait. It probably will in some form. Right? Families crumble. Businesses end. Ministries shift. Friend groups move away. Everything we're confident in is so easily shaken. We're doomed if there's no fixed point. But Jesus knew his fixed point. Jesus' confidence in his Father was so incredibly deep, so incredibly rooted that he was able to lean on the Father's strength and stand steady even when it seemed like the whole world was coming against him. 
The strength of his conviction that the Father was for him and would provide for him. This was the anchor of his soul. You see this all throughout the Gospels. John 7, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. John 10, I and the Father are one. You can multiply examples. It was that faith, that confidence that enabled him to be an anchor to others, made him a refuge in the storm to his disciples and followers. And he offers himself today in the same way to us. Friends, that is good news. We have good days and bad days. Friends, he only has good days. We waver and he is still steady. We doubt and he is still faithful. We can't work and he is still working. We feel three steps behind and he's three steps ahead. In the midst of everything and anything that can change, he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13 says. And in an anxious age, that is deeply good news. But it's not the end of the good news. Because Jesus doesn't just present himself to us as our refuge, as glorious as that is. He presents himself to us as our model. We are not just recipients of his salvation. We are called to imitate him as his disciples. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be clinging so close to him, to be covered in the dust of the rabbi to the point that we become like him. So it's appropriate that we look at Jesus and compare ourselves to him. It's right and good. It's appropriate that he becomes the yardstick for our lives. And that's the annoying part. And often the discouraging part. And often the part that can tip us into despair. Because we know that we're far from being that kind of non-anxious presence. And the people around us know that we are far from being that kind of non-anxious presence. We know what's swirling around inside and what leaks out on others. But here's the thing we've got to remember about this journey of discipleship. Jesus does not just present his life as a model for us to imitate. Something far greater and stranger and more wondrous is happening here. He gives us his very life to dwell inside us. There is a positive possession going on, a positive spirit possession through the work of the Holy Spirit that changes us, not from the outside in only, but from the inside out. This week, most of the staff, uh, we were up in Denver at our diocesan gathering, a fancy word for like our gathering of extended family um, from across the western half of the U.S. And the theme of the talks was discipleship, and the speaker was driving home the point again and again that the journey of discipleship is not behavior modification. The journey of discipleship is not just try harder. The journey of discipleship is ongoingly receiving a life that dwells inside us. That's the consistent theme of the New Testament, right? Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
That is so weird. Like, think about that for a minute. That is a weird picture and a wondrous picture. This is not, this is not us being pushed down. What happens when Jesus comes in and dwells in us is that we become more fully human. We become more fully who we were meant to be. So that the same Jesus who could stand in the midst of that hangry crowd, surrounded by discouraged disciples and obvious lack, and stay anchored in his trust of the Father, that kind of character, that kind of life becomes ours as he takes up residence in us. Paul says it a different way in 1 Corinthians 3.18, and this is a verse that recalls the, the, the image of the transfiguration, which we prayed into earlier, this picture of Jesus being shown in his full glory. And Paul says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit." What he's saying is that our glorious Jesus gives us himself through the Spirit so that we actually become more glorious ourselves, so that we change from one degree of glory to another. See, those put-together people are annoying for one reason and one reason only. They're not us. They can make us jealous and envious and frustrated because they can't just pass on their solidity to us. They can't transfer it. They can't download it. But Jesus does unite himself to us, does make us one with him, such that everything he has, we now have, including his character. We will never become the Son of God. But, what, but we have become sons and daughters of God. We will never be divine, but we have been filled with divinity. We have become participants in the divine nature, First Peter says. Think about it. Like we've become participants in the divine nature and character. There is glory within you. There is glorious power to grow in the character of Jesus, including the power to become a port in the storm for others. Now, these are words that, that, that Paul was writing, right, that can seem like just way beyond our experience, but they aren't just bluster. Paul lived them. He knew them from experience. Because over the course of his journey, you see this transformation happening to him. When we first meet Paul, he is not a non-anxious presence. He is shaken disturbed by this growing Jesus movement, so much so that he feels he needs to lash out in violence against it. This is what we always do in our fear and our stress. He's chasing, grasping, running, fretting, lashing out. But that's not where he stays. I think there's a particularly interesting glimpse into this in Acts 27. We heard it read earlier. It's the shipwreck story. Right? Paul is being transported as a prisoner to Rome. Ship veers off course in a storm, and it's on the verge of being shipwrecked. It's just an incredible story, like adventure action movie-worthy stuff. 
There's been months of travel that have gone into this. He's gained the trust of the soldiers and fellow prisoners. And, and after 14 days in the storm, right on the verge of shipwreck, you, you heard it read, everybody's running around frantic, trying to save the boat, trying to save the cargo, trying to save the passengers. Some people just trying to save their own skins by secretly letting down lifeboats to escape without anyone else knowing. It's utter chaos, complete pandemonium, nothing stable or steady at all, except for Paul. Let's listen again to this part of the story and listen to any similarities you see to this story of the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 33 of Acts 27. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. Did you catch those verbs? The verbs used, the taking, the blessing, the breaking, are all the same as the story of the 5,000. Except that the bread is not given here. Paul takes bread, blesses God for it, breaks it, but he doesn't give it because the people have to choose whether to pick it up for themselves. There's an invitation here, but not a forcing. There's simply Paul, steady in the storm, stopping, sitting, inviting others to feast on something that was in short supply. Not food. They actually had plenty of food to eat. He's inviting them to feast on peace, on confidence, on faith, on hope. He's inviting them to rest in the truth that someone can take care of them even when they cannot take care of themselves. Because this is actually what Jesus most deeply represents in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The point is not that he's a bread machine. The point is the peace in the storm, the confidence in the chaos, faith that his Father is going to provide. And it is that same peace, that same confidence in the Father's care and protection that comes to dwell in Paul as he ongoingly receives Jesus' life. And it's the same peace and confidence that can dwell in us as we receive the life of Christ into us, as we ask Christ ongoingly to come and dwell in us to give us his character. That in itself, is a miracle. And that miracle inevitably multiplies into other miracles. When Christ comes to dwell in us, we change and also the world around us changes. Notice what it says next in Acts 27. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. When they eaten as much as they want, they even take all that food which had been weighing them down and weighing the ship down, making it more dangerous, which they thought they had to have, and they throw it all overboard because they don't need it anymore. The trust, the confidence. In this story, it's not the multiplication of food that's the miracle. The miracle is the multiplication of peace that allowed them all to see and eat the food that was right in front of them the whole time. 
There was a multiplication of confidence that God's going to supply their needs, a multiplication of hope that made them all able to stop and sit and give thanks while the storm is still going. Notice the storm hasn't ended. There's not some like comment about the parting of the clouds that accompanies this moment and the sun comes out. What you should be picturing is Paul coming out above deck in some chains probably, drenched by rain. He probably looks like a, a drowned rat. Surrounded by frantic sailors in the darkness right before the dawn. Telling them to stop, sit, praise God, and eat. We know that sometimes God works to silence the storms. We pray for that and we see Him doing that. But sometimes His work is not in silencing the storm, but silencing our hearts in the middle of the storm. Sometimes God changes the circumstances. And sometimes God changes our character in the midst of the circumstances. Sometimes we have believed the lie That the only way to know whether God is there is to do something crazy big like stopping that storm. And he does do that sometimes. Often all he asks you to do is to sit, to eat, and to trust. Because you don't need to grasp. You don't need to fret. You don't need to be anxious. Because we have a fixed point. Paul knew where his security and steadiness lay. He knew where his provision came from for both body and soul, even if he had died, right? That to, to die in the body is to be at home with the Lord. He knew that because the Son of God lived inside him. The life of Jesus, who perfectly trusted in the Father, flowed into his life, and that allowed him to stand in that storm with the same kind of non-anxious presence that Jesus had. And friends, by the Holy Spirit, that can also flow into us. What we are doing in this space, what we're doing in this place is making ourselves available for the Holy Spirit to come and do that work in us. We go to the places where Jesus has promised to meet us. Right? In the gathering of God's people, in, in, in the word of God, at the table of feasting, in prayer ourselves and being prayed for by others, we, we become like the people we spend time with, right? It's just like a law of human nature. And in a mystical way, the same is true with Jesus. When we are in the places that he has promised to be in, we become more like him. Now, we can't always recognize those changes in the moment. Right? We often see it over the course of lifetimes, This particular gift, I see it so often in our elder saints. They often are the ones teaching me what this looks like. We've had several bear witness lately that have been going through really hard things, say, I don't know how I'm doing as well as I'm doing, but I'm okay. Jesus is with me. I know that. Because behind that, there have been decades of time spent with Jesus walking through things and seeing, hey, I did come out on the other side. Growing an ability to stop and sit and praise God and to invite others to do the same. Over time, we can grow in our ability to rest on that fixed point. 
We can grow in our ability to not grasp, not control, not demand, because we can know more and more that we have a Father who loves us, a Father who's providing for us, a King who's reigning over all things and is working all things to His desired end, and we have the Spirit who we can ask to help and was asking before we even knew that we needed that. We may not be able to multiply bread and fish. But see, the bread and the fish weren't the point. They were the fruits. The root of the miracle was the trust, the faith, the peace. That peace may be our greatest witness in this anxious age. That, that confidence is a superpower in a world where everything is shifting. May we become the kind of people who can give thanks to God and feast even when you know you're staring down a shipwreck. Because that doesn't change who the Father is. And it doesn't change how He cares for you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we confess that this type of confidence often seems far from us. We confess that if you expect us just to figure this out, we're doomed. So we ask you would do what you have promised. You have united yourself to us. You have given us your Holy Spirit so that we may grow in your character. So that we may bear the fruit that your life bore. Give us your peace. Give us your peace. Just because you're kind. Just because you're good. Just because we need it. in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray in expectancy that you will hear. Amen.